What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Preston Pish is a financial investor and one of the most well-read individuals I know. He's a former Apache helicopter pilot and the current host of the podcast, We Study Billionaires. In this conversation, we discuss the current liquidity crisis, the stock-to-flow model for Bitcoin, the Fed's monetary stimulus plans, the proposed digital dollar for UBI, how currencies have historically failed, and why Bitcoin's volatility is a feature, not a bug. I really enjoyed this conversation with Preston, and I think you will as well. But before we get into the episode, I want to talk about our three sponsors. The first is Crypto.com. They're an all-in-one platform that allows you to buy, sell, store, earn, loan, and invest crypto all from one place. You can join over 1 million users to buy, sell, store, earn, loan, and invest crypto in the Crypto.com app. That's right. They've got a mobile app. Go download it now, and you can earn $50 US with my code POMP2020, or use the link in the description when you sign up for one of their metal cards today. The metal cards are a Visa card. They're integrated with mobile payments that are now available for that Visa card in the United States. You can pay in a fast, easy, and secure way with Apple, Google, Samsung Pay. It will work with most of the devices used every day, and card details are never stored on your devices. So head on over to Crypto.com and use my code POMP2020. They've also recently added Tezos to their Crypto.com Earn product, which allows you to get paid interest in Tezos. So head on over to Crypto.com today. Our second sponsor is TaxBit. TaxBit helps you pay your crypto taxes easier. The IRS recently released new guidance for 2019 year where you've got to fill out a new form. So TaxBit automates your cryptocurrency taxes, enabling you to effortlessly track, calculate, and report your transactions. Get your taxes paid. You can easily connect your exchanges to securely sync your transactions and run them through TaxBit's tax engine. They generate your completed tax forms with a single click. The company was founded by tax attorneys and CPAs. TaxBit is the most trusted cryptocurrency tax solution. You can get 10% off your tax plan today with a free trial by going to taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. Again, taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. Head on over to taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. Our third sponsor today is Ledger. These guys are awesome. They've pre-recorded an ad that we'll play now, and then we'll get into the episode with Preston. I hope you enjoy it, and make sure you go check out Ledger as well. Digital assets custody can be quite difficult to secure and hard to scale. Firms are often left with a difficult decision, having to choose between security or liquidity. At Ledger, we're obsessed that our clients' businesses succeed. That is why we decided to create a digital assets platform that would enable financial institutions and crypto firms to manage their funds without compromising on security and liquidity. Firms like Uphold, Bitstamp, Crypto.com, Index, and Dunamu are already using Ledger Vault to operate their business at scale while maintaining the highest standards of security to protect their clients' funds. Visit ledger.com vault to learn more. Control. Scalability, agility, because security is not enough. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. 
All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got a special treat for you tonight in that we have uh, Preston who is uh, calling in or videoing in. Uh, We're recording this remotely, so uh, bear with us if there's any audio issues. Uh, Once the quarantine season is over, we will get back to uh, in-person interviews. Um, But for now, we'll stick with the uh, the remote ones so that we continue our social distancing. Uh, Preston, thanks so much for, uh, for jumping on and doing this. Hey, Pomp, I'm a huge fan, man. I'm excited to be here. You you, uh, you have lit uh, you have lit Twitter up with uh, all sorts of knowledge, and uh, I think people are excited to hear from you. Man, I'm excited to be here. I I'm just somewhat flabbergasted at, at what we're seeing right now. I mean, I, I kind of expected it to get crazy, but. I wasn't expecting it to get crazy in such a short amount of time. I thought it was going to be much more drawn out and just this churn. And it has just turned out to be the exact opposite of that. For sure. So before we get into kind of what's happening right now, let's talk just your background and kind of share with us, how do we get from um, your early life to, uh, to today? You know, so uh, when I went to college, I majored in aerospace engineering. I came from, uh, I went to a military academy. I went to West Point and it was very regimented, uh, to say the least. And, uh, that kind of shaped my personality quite a bit, just the, the way I kind of deal with problems and the way I think about things. So that was, that had an impact. I came with this engineering problem solving kind of mindset but I love numbers, absolutely love mathematics. And so, uh, you know, you go into the army after you graduate and I, I went in and I started flying helicopters. I became an Apache pilot and, but I wasn't doing a lot of math. It was, you know, some of your flight planning, I guess there's some basic arithmetic there, but not really a lot of math. And, uh, so I just became kind of obsessed with the markets because it was really complex. And I, I can say that's probably one of the things that really gets me excited is when something's difficult to understand and it's really complex. I just dive in. I just really want to understand how it works. And, um, so all this time while I was in the army, really the kind of the fascination started when I, my first assignment was in South Korea after flight school. And, um, you know, just really started reading as much as I could get my hands on in the financial markets. And one thing led to another, and it really kind of, early on, I was like, okay, so who's the smartest investor out there? What books have they read? What do they think about? And so it led me to Warren Buffett. I kind of became obsessed with anything and everything Warren Buffett related. You can probably see the security analysis book that back there behind me, I had the whole thing tabbed out and highlighted and just totally nerded out on the thing. And, uh, you know, 2008 hits and learned real fast that there was a lot of parts to the investing story that I still didn't understand through that, through that event and just made me dig in even more. And so through the years, I mean, I've been at it for probably two decades nearly at this point, just investing personally and reading as much as I can possibly get my hands on and then just studying anybody who has made lots of money in the market. 
and just trying to understand how their brain ticks and how they've been able to pick it apart. And here we are. So, uh, yeah, that's, I'd say that's probably the, the, uh, cliff notes version. For sure. And then how did you originally come across a uh, Bitcoin and kind of crypto, um, as you're doing that studying? You know, I, uh, I was not a macro person at all for the longest time. And believe it or not, it's kind of funny because I read uh, Tony Robbins' book. Uh, oh, God, I can't even remember the name of He's He's done two of them. The first one, I think it was just called Money Master the Game was the first one. And in the book, he talks about Ray Dalio a lot. And I I'd really not studied Ray Dalio, didn't know really anything about his approach. But Tony was just, I mean, pumping him so hard in this book as if he was the master of everything, right? And here I am as a Warren Buffett person and just, you know, the the propaganda from Buffett is that if it's macro related, you just ignore it and you just look at the individual company and it's kind of this ground up analysis and macro is too hard to understand. So you just ignore it. And so Dalio, I, I was just kind of blown away how much um, Tony Robbins was talking him up. So I started reading everything I could get my hands on on Ray Dalio. Like, how does he have his opinion? Well, why is it structured this way? Why does he have gold in his portfolio? That's nuts because any Warren Buffett person will tell you gold's worthless. Um, so like all these ideas that were just, they were so counter to everything that I believed up to that point. And I loved it because it was counter to what I thought. And if you study anybody who's made a lot of money in the markets, they, they absolutely love it when somebody has the opposite opinion of them and they want to understand all the reasons why. So that was me. I was like, okay, I just tried to read everything I can on Ray Dalio. Next thing I know, Ray had posted, and it's not available online anymore, but luckily I got the PDF and I printed this thing before it was taken offline. But I mean, his whole, um, there's a really famous video that Ray Dalio did. It's called How the Economic Machine Works. It's a 30-minute vi video. I would tell you that video, that 30-minute video is probably more valuable than um, anything you'll probably ever learn in a business school economics class ever. Uh, and I, I truly mean that. If you don't believe me, pull up the video, watch it for yourself. And I'm pretty much sure that that's probably the conclusion you'll draw at the end of it. Well, anyway, uh, Ray had a, I would say it was a, it's on the shelf back there too. It's probably 200 to 250 page manual. That was the text behind that video. It went into a lot more detail than that video. And um, I studied the living hell out of this thing. I mean, just read it and read it again and then started digging into like all these ideas that Ray had. And so I would tell you that as I look at my investing approach today, I would tell you it's probably 50% Dalio and 50% Buffett as far as the fundamentals, maybe, you know, 10% you could shave off to some other folks. But in, in general, I'd say it's a 50-50 split between those two investors as to how I think about markets. And so that's how I started getting invested or I started getting interested in Bitcoin is because I'm looking at all the things from the Dalio approach and I'm saying, this is, this is pretty darn scary now that I'm seeing the world from a completely different vantage point and all these macro factors. And you've got these 80-year credit cycles, which I was not even aware of as a value investor with a Buffett style approach. But when you start looking at those charts and you see the 10-year treasury that 
went up for 40 years and now it's gone down for 40 years and now it's at zero percent and well what does that mean well uh, we can get into all the what all that means but um as a person who never looked at that i can tell you it was pretty alarming for me probably oh boy five years ago i'd say is whenever i the light sweet well it's more than that because i started getting into bitcoin it was probably 2014 when i started reading all that and it quickly led me to Bitcoin. And I made my first purchase at the start of the second quarter in 2015 for Bitcoin. Got it. And so let, let's fast forward from that point to today, because I think a lot of people are um, kind of, you know, holding on to their seat saying, what the hell is going on right now? Um, and I think that it plays very well into kind of the Bitcoin story. But what's your analysis on kind of the liquidity crisis that we're seeing and and the more macro factors at play right now um, in this kind of uh, financial market uncertainty that we're seeing? I think the thing that a lot of people don't realize is is they... I would think that a lot of people just bias to whatever they understand domestically and whatever country they're at. And they say, Oh, I'm in the U S and the U S markets are a disaster. And they, you know, this and that, but what I think a lot of people are missing is it's not just the U S this is a global thing that everybody is in simultaneously at the same time. And I personally believe, and I've talked about this on a couple other shows recently that the reason you're seeing everything so correlated from a macro standpoint across all these various countries, call it the yen, call it the euro, the, the dollar, I mean, pretty much any country you can, you can go to and they're all in the same boat with 0% interest rates in real terms, nominal terms, you still got a little bit left here in the US, but not much. Uh, but the real rates here in the US are, are negative across the entire duration of the bond yield curve. Um, and what I would tell you is, that is no coincidence. Like the, the reason that this is happening now is really because of Bretton Woods. And I know that that happened, you know, 1944 is when that happened. And that was a long time ago. But when everything was, when the dollar was pegged to gold and it was pegged clear up to 71 and all the other countries were pegged to the dollar throughout that period of time, that's where you're getting the correlation from as far as them all moving together. So when you come off of that peg in 71 and interest rates are sky high and they even went higher into the early 80s because they were depegged and all that and they were still printing and adjusting the money multiplier and all that stuff. But it got to a point where Volcker, Paul Volcker, who was the Fed chairman in, at the time in 81, steps in and he says, all right, we've got to do something about this. And he started bringing the interest rates lower and it drove all of these dynamics where we became a service-based economy here in the U.S. The other countries that were basically... Uh, creating the situation where they had to keep lo lowering those interest rates where the then became the manufacturers and the producers through the next, you know, 40 years and 39 years. And that's where we're at today is they kept driving those interest rates lower. And that, there's your big credit cycle, the Dalio described credit cycle that I was referencing earlier that now you're at 0%. And so now what does that mean? Yeah. And, and it feels like, you know, there's a lot of people, especially in the Bitcoin community, who've been yelling and screaming about, um, hey, if uh, what happened already happens, Bitcoin's going to do very well. And there's a little bit of impatience, I think, um, in the market, uh, really because the lack of understanding around a liquidity crisis, kind of this idea that um, everyone's going to sell every asset they can to get dollars. And 
that's where you see the interest rates come down. You see the quantitative easing that was announced, et cetera. Maybe talk a little bit about um, kind of how these credit cycles, right? And kind of Dalio's description, um, what happens at these uh, transition periods or uh, inflection points, or I think he calls them paradigm shifts to some degree. Like, how does that play into where we are right now? So at the end, which is where we're at now, because you've got interest rates at 0%, um, you've got to go back to some type of sound money. That's pretty much the only way you can get by. And, and most of it revolves around the debt markets because once you once you have debt at 0%, I mean, think if you're, you got to put yourself in the shoes of a 60-year-old, 70-year-old person who can't afford volatility in their portfolio that has to have some type of yield that they've completely uh, banked on for decades that they were going to have that they were going to be able to capture five or 10% yields on interest rates, right? So they're banking on that and now they're there and now you're getting 0% and in real terms, you're getting negative percent and that dog don't hunt. So you get in this situation where it's, it will not work for people where it gets even more interesting is your velocity of money. When you look at that metric over the last, you know, 30 years, has just been continuing to decline, just like your interest rates have. And the reason that you're seeing that is because the money's getting polarized into the upper class of society. And guess what? The upper class only has so many yachts and only so many mansions they go out and buy until they're kind of task saturated on their pleasures. And then the rest just goes into more capital investments uh, in the stock market, the bond market, or whatever, and real estate, or however they're, they're spending it. But What's, what that does is that dries up the velocity of money, and then you don't see your your bottom half. It's not even a half. Your your bottom ninety percent of of the uh, population that spend less and spend less, and then next year they even spend less than that. And so now they're at a point where, when interest rates get to zero percent, they've they've basically bought back the bond market because it's at 0%, and that's what your quantitative easing has done. And now they've got to start inserting the cash into the general population in order to create some type of some type of spending, right? Because everyone, I don't want to say everyone, but a majority of your people, not just in the U.S., but globally, are in this situation where they've already spent it. They're, they're on credit cards now at this point, and they can't spend anymore. So now, now you're seeing UBI enter. And I'll tell you, a year ago... I don't remember which interviews I said this, but I said it to people. I said, this is, this is politics agnostic. This does not matter if you're a Republican, Democrat, far left, far right, or whatever. UBI, universal basic income, is going to happen. It's just a matter of when it happens because you have to stimulate the economy. You have to keep the spending going in order to keep this fiat farce alive. And so now you've got the coronavirus, and I think a lot of people are going to falsely attribute UBI to the coronavirus, which is fine because maybe it might help prevent uh, a war between nations, but um, they're going to they're gonna attribute it to that. But I can tell you all the groundwork and all the mathematics uh, and all the lack of velocity of money were pointing in this direction way before this coronavirus ever came along. Yeah, it feels like uh, the coronavirus really is the accelerant for um, kind of a number of trends and um, kind of forces that are all now coming to a head. And the coronavirus is uh, in some weird way a health crisis 
that's manifesting itself as a financial crisis at the same time. And because you get these two crises kind of overlaid on each other, it feels like you get monetary policy and also um, kind of the, the government or, or regulator side. Uh, all of a sudden, they realize we normally are, are used to dealing with one crisis at a time. When we have two, let's ratchet up our moves. So it almost is, um, I, I said to somebody, it's kind of like they're used to playing chess. Now they have to play one minute chess. And the second that they have to play one minute chess, that just means they make their moves faster than they would have wanted to do if uh, if they didn't have kind of a health and financial crisis at the same time. Does that feel right to you or do you look at it a different way? No, I completely agree with what you're saying. Uh, you know, if you did the math on it and you were saying, well, this is a one in 80 year event with the credit cycle or one in a hundred year event, and you've got a pandemic that's a once in a hundred year event, you know, one divided by a hundred times one divided by a hundred is a pretty small number. And that's what we're dealing with here as far as how likely what we're seeing today that's playing out. I mean, you could, you could make the argument that we're seeing something that's a once in a 500 year to a thousand year kind of event slapped on top of each other. I don't think a lot of people are going to view it that way, but that's absolutely how I view it. Yeah, I, I tend to uh, think you're more right than wrong in that analysis. Um, so Bitcoin last week uh, or two weeks ago at this point uh, had a massive drawdown, drew down 50%. Uh, it's down about 30%, give or take right now um, from uh, from kind of pre the coronavirus financial crunch, if you were the liquidity crisis. Um, th a lot of people are looking around the room and saying, hey, is it over? Right. And uh one of the metrics or uh, models that people use is the stock to flow model um, to understand kind of where Bitcoin is and is it doing what it's uh, supposed to do um, or staying on track. I know you've got a lot of thoughts about the stock to flow model and kind of how the, the recent price drop plays into that. Maybe talk a little bit about um, how you see those two events um, kind of overlapping. So I guess the numbers I always like to look at is the start of the year. <laughs> so, although you're right from saying the before the coronavirus kind of hit, you know, I look, I I personally was looking at the coronavirus back in January, and I was like, this is going to be really bad, super bad because of the videos and the numbers we were seeing out of China. But if we were just going to look at the numbers from the start of the year, because it just gives you a little bit more context on performance, um, the start of the year gold is down 1.6 percent. Bitcoin from the start, January 1st, is down 4.65%, and the S&P 500 is down negative 31%. And people just got to understand these numbers, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of crazy to me how long people can keep their head in the sand as to the performance of this thing. It's just somewhat mind-blowing to me. Um, so go into what you were saying there about stock to flow. So... Plan B comes out with this, this article, brilliant article, and he's comparing the, the stock, the existing uh, amount of, every, and anyone who's listening to this as a Bitcoiner obviously knows with how this thing is measured. It's your stock, the amount of Bitcoins that are currently on the market versus the flow, how many are being dropped at whatever rate. And when you're looking at this thing and you're seeing how accurate the R squared value is on this, it's, I've never seen anything like this in trading the markets since I've been doing it for two decades. Not anything close to this. 
And when people saw the price and as we're approaching the next four-year halving, typically what you've seen in the past is that the price really starts to narrow its volatility around that intrinsic value. I call it an intrinsic value or that stock-to-flow value. As soon as the four-year cycle, or I'm sorry, as soon as the four-year halving occurs, you see that volatility separate away from that intrinsic value or that uh, stock-to-flow value tremendously. But as it, but as time marches on, you see that volatility kind of start coming in and, and kind of become fixated into that real tight uh, price pattern. And you're seeing the same thing play out right now. But I think what surprised everybody with this recent drop is, is they were not expecting this. I was not expecting this drop at all. But I wasn't expecting the supply and demand shock that we saw that came out of the coronavirus at the level that we saw it. I was expecting a supply and demand shock, but not anywhere near, I mean, car sales down like 80%. I mean, these numbers are not even fathomable for anybody that follows financial markets. Like these numbers are insane, absolutely insane. So what you got to understand is the derivatives market is just one giant, uh, I would call it half casino and half risk mitigation. <laughs> what I mean by that is you have, you get, let's just say you have an airline company, like they're trying to protect their risk in the oil market, right? So they're there for the right reasons to mitigate their risk. They just look at it as an insurance cost. But then the people on the other side of that trade are pretty much high stakes gamblers and, and people that are um, you know, uh, speculators, right? And so when those assumptions that are being made as to what supply and demand is going to look like in the future drastically change, guess what? You have massive impairment on one of those two people's balance sheets, massive impairment. And so how do you, how do you fix your impairment? Well, you got to go to fiat. You got to swap straight into dollars, into euros, whatever the denomination is for that derivative, you've got to swap into that fiat. And I'm not talking about credit. I'm talking about monetary baseline fiat that you've got to swap into in order to adjudicate that impairment on those balance sheets. And so think about what we just saw. We saw the biggest supply and demand shock. I think you could, you could argue the world has ever seen, right? We just saw the biggest supply-demand shock, which means you had the biggest amount of impairment that we've ever seen in the derivatives market ever, right? And so people don't understand how big the derivatives market is. Wrap your head around this figure. The, the derivatives market, when you look at shadow derivatives, you look at reported derivatives, then you look at unfunded government liabilities, all inside of this derivative market, you're talking $1,600 trillion, right? So that is such a big number that people hear it and they're just like, oh, yeah, that's a big number. But to, to just kind of lay, lay, lay a little context to it, right? Let's just assume the gold market's 10 trillion just for easy math. And, the, you know, you'll hear people say it's six or seven or eight trillion or whatever, but let's just make the number around here. Let's say it's a $10 trillion market for the entire global gold market, okay? This is 160 times bigger than that. That's how big this is capitalized as far as the derivatives. 
So when you're talking about a $1,600 trillion derivative market that has massive impairment, that everyone's got to swap into fiat, fixed monetary baseline fiat, in order to adjudicate all those derivative positions, you better darn well believe everything, and I mean everything, is going to be sold in order to come up with the dollars that are inside of all that capitalization to adjudicate this stuff, right? So to, to say that Bitcoin went down and has already had quite a decent recovery, I mean, hold on, let me look at the flipping chart. Hold on, let me do the math real fast. Bitcoin has already recovered 50% since the bottom of this derivative event Right. And now it might not stay there. It might go back down. That could happen. I know. But the fact that it has rebounded 50% off of that to me is mind numbing how resilient and honey badger like this flipping thing is. Yeah, it, it is absolutely incredible. And, and I said to somebody, uh, you've got to remember that take equity markets, for example, they've got the circuit breakers, they've got hours of operation, they've got all kinds of uh, mechanisms in place to tamp down volatility and uh, do everything they can to not have a free market. Because frankly, they're scared of what would happen when you do have uh, a truly free market in times of panic, uncertainty, fear, etc. Bitcoin is a free market. Right. There's no circuit breakers. There's no hours of operations. And so when you get that moment um, where everyone is selling everything, the fact that it only drew down 50 percent is wild. And then if you look at things like I think Nick Carter um, and the folks at Coinmetrics did a study that almost all of the Bitcoin that was sold in that sell off was Bitcoin that had moved in the last six months or, or sooner. So it was no long-term holders. It was no anybody with strong hands. It was all the traders, the Wall Street firms, the, the people who had just bought it and didn't know what they were doing um, or, or kind of new into this. And so I think it just continues to prove out this thesis that there's two types of people who hold Bitcoin. There's the financial speculators and then there's the long-term holders. I don't think there's a single thing that could happen to shake the holders out of um, out of Bitcoin. Uh, obviously, the financial speculators, something as simple as a liquidity crisis, you know, they, they couldn't get out of it soon enough and you get a 50% drop in a free market. So I agree with everything you just said. And, and if you noticed, I, was, I had quite the smirk on my face because the speculators that got sh shook out of their positions, and this might be a really gross uh, opinion for, for some people, I, I don't know, but for me, when this went down, I was just, I was just like, this ain't nothing but a thing. This is just the derivatives market blowing up and they have to sell their positions. These are all speculators. They're, they're the people that I don't want to own this stuff because they're the people that I don't want to have influence in the rebuilding of this after all this shakes out. So the fact that, that, that sell off pushed those coins into the hands of the knowledgeable and the people that actually understand and that have done all the hard work to understand what in the world's going on. Those are the people that we want to influence and shape the future. Let me tell you, they are. Um, so I was, I just looked at it as a blessing. <laughs> I just looked yeah, at it absolutely. as like, Oh hell yeah, this is great. <laughs>
So obviously there's all kinds of uncertainty um, going on in the markets. There's this huge liquidity crisis. We see the dollar strengthening against other currencies, against all of these assets, um, which kind of leads to the asset price bleed, um, et cetera. And then we got the Fed's response. And if we had talked uh, a week and one day ago on, uh, on Sunday, we would be talking about the $700 billion quantitative easing and the second emergency rate cut down to zero uh, interest rates. Um, on Monday uh, of this week, we got the uh, next surprise, which was infinite quantitative easing. So the $700 billion they announced a week ago, not good enough. Now, literally using the word infinite, in, uh, or I believe unlimited uh, was another word that was used um, to basically describe how much printing they are willing to do in order to try to get us out of this thing. Uh, what's your general reaction to all of this? You know, kind of like what I said at the start of the show, I, I think it was all expected. I just wasn't expecting it to unravel in a week and a half that they would be coming up with some of these obscene numbers that they're, that they're coming up with. I, I was just not expecting it to roll out. It's it's such a gangbuster speed. Um, you know, they've got a real problem with the dollar being so strong. And it goes back to a lot of this derivatives conversation. When you think about when you think about everyone having to settle these massive amounts of derivatives by swapping into fiat. I don't know what the percentage is, but I would imagine the percentage of derivatives that are denominated in dollars is far beyond any other currency by a landslide. And so when you look at the valuation of a fiat currency, it's all about its utility and how many people need to swap into it at that moment in order to make good on whatever they're, that they're trying to adjudicate or buy or whatever. And so when I look at that and I say, wow, the dollar is just taking off like a rocket right now. It's getting so strong. And then you think of all the implications of that. So all the goods inside of the United States are now more expensive, whether they're, they're actually a product or they're a service, all that gets more expensive, which means all that work is going to be sent elsewhere in the world. And where I'm concerned is you're going to have another supply and demand shock on the back end of this. Now, I know the long end of the, uh, of the derivatives curve is already pricing when they kind of expect that to happen. but you got to realize, I don't think anyone has a good idea of when that's actually going to happen. And so as, as reality takes shape, all those derivatives are going to continue to get drastically repriced as the call for people to go back to work takes place or doesn't take place, regardless of where it's at. If it happens sooner or if it happens later, all those derivatives for that duration in the curve are then going to get repriced. Then everyone's going to run back to the dollar in order to and I'm talking as a percentage wise, they're going to run back into the derivatives market to reprice all of that. And the dollar is going to continue to, to just go gangbusters. So I don't know how the U S can possibly deal with that other than just printing at ridiculous levels to try to, to ease that because people just don't understand how bad that is for, uh, for, GDP inside of the U.S. when you got the dollar just taken off like that. It's absolutely nuts. Yeah, it, it feels like um, there's a great misunderstanding. I feel like there's been two uh, economic lessons that people have learned in the last couple of weeks. The first was, what's a liquidity crisis and how does that have an effect on all these assets? I've probably answered that question a hundred plus times on 
Why are all the asset prices going down? And then once people understand what a liquidity crisis is and how it works, okay, that makes sense to me. Now, the second thing that um, we're seeing is I keep telling people, listen, the dollar is strengthening. At some point, they're going to have to weaken it if they want to stabilize markets and eventually drive the recovery. And all I keep hearing from people is shorting the dollar would be insane and you know all of these things that are going on. But I don't think people realize kind of the systematic um, mechanisms in place and the need for uh, the United States to step in and actually weaken their own currency so that those other assets are able to uh, recover. And the only way to do that is to print a bunch of money and flood the market with dollars, right? They've pretty much, um, you know, kind of expended everything else. So you bring up a great point, and I think it comes down to how people are interpreting timelines. And so, you know, they, they'll see a tweet where I say, I think that the that fiat currency is doomed, right? And so the immediate conclusion must be, well, Presta thinks the dollar is a bad place to be. But they don't understand. Uh, it's it's really hard to communicate everything in whatever, how many characters you have on, on a Twitter feed. But my opinion is in the short term, the dollar is a an amazing place to be right now because relative to everything else, and you've seen this play out, the dollar has just crushed Anything and everything. I mean, it's even out since the start of the year. It's outperformed Bitcoin by 5%, the dollar, right? Now, do I think that that's going to continue to persist? No. But um, in that short period of time, as we're talking about these derivatives blowing up because of supply and demand, the, the dollar in that very short window is outperforming. And I think as you see these other, if you if you have more derivative events like this, that blow it out, that cause a huge surge for monetary baseline fiat. You're going to see the price of everything, probably to include Bitcoin, get punished through those events. Yep. But then it's going to come back, especially as, as they start doing all these quantitative easing and UBI and everything else that they've got to do. That timeline, as you look out further, the dollar is going to get murdered against gold and Bitcoin. Right. It's going to get murdered against these things. And I think it's also going to get murdered against uh, some type of commodities, especially things like oil and, and, and some others. But the timing on that is going to be dependent on when people start going back to work and you start to see. I don't I don't want to say you're going to see normalcy again, because I don't think the, the economy we're going to be going back to is going to be anything but normal like we're accustomed to. But people going back to work, there's going to be a demand there. you got UBI payments that are going to be going out that are going to be very hard to turn off. Um, and all of that's going to start plowing its way into what I would describe as a fixed, um, supply or a, a, a fixed flow of commodities that are going to start coming out and they're going to, they're going to somewhat perform like gold and Bitcoin, but not nearly at the, at the yield that you're going to see on those two in particular. Yeah. It, I, the example I keep using with people is in 2008, um, kind of the six month, um, middle part of 2008, when there was the liquidity crisis, gold went down 30%. And then you kind of elicit this massive, uh, or at least at the time, massive monetary stimulus uh, from the government, um, you know, kind of hundreds of billions at the time was a big deal. And uh, when they did that, all of a sudden investors realized, hey, my currency is going to be devalued. There's um, you know, inflationary concerns, et cetera, they run back into gold and all of a sudden gold ends up being up 3X over the life cycle of the 2008, uh, to, you know, kind of 2011 uh, crisis. 
and it feels like same playbook, just a different day, right? Where you're going to get that um, response from uh, from governments where they've got to bring the monetary stimulus to weaken the dollar to stabilize markets and drive a recovery. And over time, you're going to see people realize today being in the dollar is a great idea. Six months, 12 months, 18 months from now, probably not the best idea. Um, and then, of course, you layer in the fact that what would have happened in late 2009 and into 2010 if 50% of the gold miners had just gone offline at the moment everyone wanted gold, right? And I think that's what we're going to see with Bitcoin and the Bitcoin halving. Um, so, so it's just kind of this story where I just keep saying this is a script that even Hollywood couldn't write to some degree. No, they couldn't. You're, you are in, you know, I, I saw some people tweeting that they're like, hey, how can we make the simulation stop? <laughs> it's just, it's getting a little weird. For sure. So what what's your general um thought process on the Fed's response? Are they just doing what they have to do? Like is this the right thing for them to do given the set of cards that they have or do you think that they should be doing something else um that might put them in a better position? Well, they're in a unique situation because they understand what's going on. I I don't think uh there's any shadow of a doubt that the people inside of the Fed obviously know there's something very bad on the horizon. I mean, that's the that's the reason they've been doing all these repo operations. That's why they did QE for as long as they did it. They know that they're in a very precarious situation. The problem that they have, is, especially right now, because now you're in a crisis. Now you not only have to exercise monetary policy, you also have to exercise fiscal policy in order to get enough money into the economy so that you don't have things start locking up and breaking. And so ch the challenge that they have is, last time I checked, when you implement fiscal policy, you got a lot of people that got to vote on it and agree what that looks like. Whereas on the monetary policy side, you got basically a figurehead that says, this is what we're going to do. Like you saw today, they're like, hey, let's just start buying corporate uh, debt through an ETF, like just out of nowhere. And I mean, People, they're doing these things because they literally have to, and they're doing these things. And I don't even know if, if there's a legal framework for them to start buying corporate debt like that. I, I kind of think that there isn't, um, but I guess we'll find out sooner or later. But with everyone on quarantine, how are you even going to litigate something like, like that? I mean, they're just doing whatever they can to keep the boat afloat because they don't have to agree with, you know, 435 people as to what that looks like. So I think that's the challenge you have on the fiscal side is because you got so many voting members and you got so many people who clearly do not understand what in the world's happening. They, there's no way that they could possibly understand all the nuances of this uh, from all the other things that they handle and what their specialties are and stuff like that. I don't expect them to understand this, but I, I guess what I do expect out of them is to not outspend the tax receipts. Um, I think that would be the, the only thing we really need them to do is not exceed the, the spending of what they raise in tax receipts. We did that. We'd never have this problem. Um, but you know, they need to step in and, um, they've got to do the UBI thing. I mean, they've got to get that approved. They've got to start getting money into the hands of, um, you know, the, the working class person, because if they don't, it's going to, they could get into a real serious social unrest situation. And for people that don't understand when I say the fed's got to do this, the, They've got to do UBI and that stuff. That's the reason why I'm saying that is because if they don't, they're going to get into a situation where you have gross social unrest, not just in the U.S., but globally. And I think people are already kind of seeing some of that. 
Yeah. It sounds like you're of the opinion, as am I, that uh, once they start this, there's no going back. They won't be able to turn it off. People will get it just like the economy got addicted to monetary stimulus. Uh, you're going to get a population addicted to UBI and uh, and pretty much, you know, you ever go to take it away from them, you're going to have that same social unrest. So you might as well just buckle up and get used to this as the new norm. And, you know, people, uh, you, you've got to have a transition into a sound money is what, what has to happen. Um, the speed at which that happens is anybody's guess. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, you obviously know my opinion. I think it's going to be Bitcoin. And I think that I think the coming two years are going to be beyond exciting for the price movement in Bitcoin. And I think that this four-year halving that's coming up in May is going to really drive um, that realization for a lot of people, especially as all these UBI checks go out and you got so many millennials that are just going to plow it straight into this. And these millennials have been a condition to, to find 30% moves you know, up or down to be somewhat normal. You know, it's like, oh, well, I don't have anything to lose. So if it went down 30%, no big deal. And they're just, I mean, they're like the pristine hodler that, that you need them to be. Um, that, you know, you get some of the older generation. I mean, something moves 30% and they're literally cleaning their pants. So, well, they you know, decide, I, they I, I just think that the... Say that again, Pomp. I didn't hear you. I said that they just saw equities fall 30% and they're all ready to like jump off a cliff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I mean, in, in the Bitcoin space, that ain't nothing but a thing. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the UBI. Uh, it recently came out. Um, I think it's uh, Pelosi and, uh, and and some of uh, um, you know kind of her peers, but it doesn't really matter who it is. Uh, is now proposing the idea of uh, folks getting a digital wallet and receiving these UBI payments uh, potentially through a digital dollar. What do you kind of take from uh, from this whole idea of everyone hates Libra and Bitcoin? You know. 12 months ago to now we're talking about potentially paying UBI via a digital dollar into a digital wallet. To me, it sounds like they're speeding up the adoption of Bitcoin. I mean, think about it. You, you're going to have immediate clearance of transactions into Bitcoin. So before, yeah. if they were doing UBI checks to, to their Bank of America account, and then they had to clear it and whatever, I mean, it's just... I think it's going to be a faster uh, clearance of transactions time into a sound monetary baseline currency. And there's definitely no difference in it being pegged, which is the issue. So unless, and even if they did say it was pegged, I don't think anyone would believe it. So I know I wouldn't. I would immediately swap it into Bitcoin if I received it. And I think anybody who understands what's happening is going to do the exact same thing. So if anything, they've just accelerated the speed at which Bitcoin adoption is going to happen by doing it. So sure, have at it. Yeah. The, the, one of the reasons why uh, last year um, on television, I started talking more and more about the digital dollar was uh, I thought that there was kind of a win-win situation, which was the U.S., um, if other countries were to digitize their currency and the U.S. did not, uh, we didn't have a digital dollar. There is a, a big risk to the dollar becoming less accessible to people around the world, right? If I can all of a sudden with an internet connection, log in and I can buy the digital uh, yuan or a digital ruble or something like that, but I can't get a digital dollar, 
there's an accessibility challenge, um, and therefore I'm going to store my wealth in another currency um, if for some reason I don't do it in Bitcoin. But then the second piece is, well, if they're going to digitize the dollar, then they're going to have to get everyone digital wallets. And just like you said, I think that once you start handing people digital wallets, humans aren't stupid, right? And they're going to realize very quickly, wait a second, there's one that's a deflationary type currency that has the ability uh, to be provably scarce versus I've got this inflationary thing, which if you look at the Fed's balance sheet uh, from last week, literally it looks like it went parabolic, right? And that they added $356 billion, uh, which is the highest increase in a week ever, right? And so I think just when you start thinking about where does an entire generation of people put their uh, um, kind of wealth and where do they trust? Well, they trust the thing that they can prove. And so if you're going to hand people digital wallets, you know, like you said, I think you're just accelerating Bitcoin's kind of rise in popularity. I mean, if you've got a billion dollars and you got to send it to, into another currency and it takes hours or a day to get uh, a clearance of transaction on that, um, you've got to take out some type of, uh, I would think a, a smart person would look at that and say, all right, what's my, what's my volatility risk at, for this specific currency into the other one? And they got to take out a derivatives contract in order to protect that. Um, with, with digital tokens, you get your clearance of transactions near immediate, right? So you're, you're, you're taking that frictional cost of protecting that volatility risk through the, the time that it takes to clear completely out of the equation. So, you know, the countries that are going to be the last movers on that, I don't know that I would step out and say that it's going to be the demise of that currency by any shape of the imagination, but it's definitely going to push um, people, corporations, and nations to adopt a different form of, of currency. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just silly, man. When you look at, when you look at how obvious some of this is, you just got to shake your head and just say, my God, how are people not getting this? Yeah, most of them haven't done the work yet. Uh, you mentioned kind of the demise of currencies, though, and I know that you probably more than most have, uh, have done a lot of work, uh, one, studying and understanding, but also, two, kind of articulating how currencies fail. Maybe walk us through um, historically how that's happened, and, um, and then we can talk about how that may play out here uh, you know, in, in our lifetimes. Yeah, so I got kind of a simple formula. I'm, there's probably more nuances to it than than what I've written down, but I've just kind of simplified it. And so I say, when you have three things happen and they all got to happen, that's when you get into a currency failure situation. The first is that it it's not pegged to anything. So we're seeing that. We've seen that for, I mean, since 1971, that condition has been met. The next one is that you have fiscal spending that exceeds the tax receipts. And so we've had that for uh, quite a while as well. You know, you could have a, you could have a fiat currency. And as long as that country that, that is hosting that currency does not outspend their tax receipts, you're fine. You, you don't necessarily have to have a peg, but you know, human nature, you can read a book on human nature. Any, any type of history book will show you what human nature is. And human nature leads you to wanting more and greed kind of overpowering the, the other courses that you have to choose from that are much more honorable. And so that human nature eats, eats away at that. And eventually you get in a position where elected officials understand that they can vote themselves money from the treasury in order to get reelected. And when you don't have term limits, uh, they'll do it. And so, uh, you know, I, I think one of the easiest ways to solve that, that particular issue, as far as tax receipts 
um, you know, or this, the spending exceeding tax receipts is you just got to put term limits on people. That's just, it's just too obvious. But anyway, another conversation. Um, the third condition that needs to be met is um, that once you get the debt that's, that's issued in that currency on the government, I'm, I'm specifically talking about the government debt. Once it starts going down to 0% and you start getting real rates that are, that are negative, and that's your third condition, all three have to be met. Then you're in a position now where people are literally going to opt to take the fiat, have it printed. They're going to stick it in a safety deposit box because they're going to get a better return than owning a, a bond that's giving them a negative return. When you get in that situation, and those are contracts, I look at those bond contracts as guaranteed contracts to lose money. So if, if you came up to me and said, uh, Preston, give me $100, I guarantee you I'll give you back 95 next year. That in essence, is your negative yielding bond contract. So when you have all three of those met, that's when a currency starts to fail. Now, if you look at, I hear people say, well, look at Japan, look what happened there. They were at 0% for years and all those conditions were, were met. And you, you also have to look at where that money can flow globally uh, when those conditions are set. And so you had yield in all these other countries up until recently. And so now you're at, a, at the position where all three of those conditions are met on a global scale for every major economy in the world. And so now the question is, is well, what, how, and, and why would anybody want to buy a bond today? And for the people that, you know, all the Wall Streeters will tell you, oh, well, I can buy it right now. And then the Fed's going to push it more negative, And then I could sell it at a profit. And you couldn't get a, uh, a more, uh, you know, I, I stole this from Warren Buffett. He would always say picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. You couldn't get a more picking up pennies in front of a steamroller type strategy than that, in my humble opinion. Yeah, it feels like that's a very um, classically trained financial engineer type answer, right? Which is yeah. how do I eke out uh, any little bit of basis points of value versus why don't I actually go find what the next you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years looks like and actually bet on the thing that it's not about single basis points. It's, the, it's about kind of paradigm shifts, if you will, from, uh, from Dalio. So I have my own business. I know what it takes to, to earn a dollar, right? Anybody else who owns their own small business or mid-cap business that, that's a founder or a very high equity holder understands what it takes to make a dollar. People who understand how to create a dollar of value in society, right? They are not putting those trades on because they look at them as being absurdly unintelligent. The people you see putting these trades on are taking other people's money and they're the experts that are investing it on their behalf as their agent, right? Every person putting that trade on is not somebody who's creating real value for society because if they were, they would never in a million years, sign up for a contract that guarantees them to lose money. <laughs> you, you don't mince words, but you are definitely not wrong at all, right? And, and I think that's part of what we're seeing right now is there was um, a lot of financial engineering going on. And when you look out into uh, the markets, I mean, how long have people been saying, hey, we've got over leveraged companies in the public markets, uh, you've got a pension crisis, you kind of got all these things going on. Um, and actually the people who were 
or calling it out and, uh, and, and kind of most aware of it were the people who aren't inside the, the system, right? They're not in that legacy world that um, is kind of blinded to all of this. Um, and, and so you need those people to kind of check on reality sometimes. So, Pomp, I wanted to talk about this, uh, going back to the stock, the flow, if you don't mind, I want to, I want to talk about an idea that I think is really important. I think when, when we look at, um, a quote that Satoshi came up with, let me see if I can find it really fast. I, I apologize for, uh, the delay here as I'm trying to find this on my phone, but you know, early on Satoshi was talking about ideas around how you would value, uh, Bitcoin early on. And he was talking about a model that was um, very similar to mining uh, physical uh, commodities. And uh, one of the things that he talked about was this exact model. I'm trying to find the quote here. And I got this just for people uh, to know where I got this. I got this quote out of a book that's called The Book of Satoshi. And it's a uh, just a consolidated list of... Um, all these direct quotes from Satoshi. I really like to study direct quotes and not things that people are, you know, well, I think he said something like this. I want to read exactly the verbiage that, that he came up with whenever he said it. I'm really struggling to find the quote here. Hold on one second. Oh, I no, can't find it on my phone. But let me, let me just paraphrase it. And uh, after I just said that, I like to have the exact quote. Let me paraphrase it. What he gets into is, is he talks about how when you have something that's really expensive, it incentivizes all those miners to go in there and capture that price. And then whenever the, the price is getting punished, it, they're, they're not making money because their cost is below that. So they start shutting down. And he's basically describing the exact thing that we've all seen play out with the Bitcoin price uh, through the last 10 years. And so what I find fascinating about all this is, is he was totally expecting the price of Bitcoin to follow and track very closely to the electrical cost. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that as more miners come online and this difficulty adjustment keeps ratcheting up almost like a noose throughout that four-year period, this, this four-year period then throws in this shock this, uh, with the four-year having, it throws this shock into that stock to flow, ramps it up just like the model is showing. And then all the people that can't, can't produce at that, at that price, right? If I'm a miner and the, and the stock to flow just increased at an exponential level to what I was just accustomed to, I'm now out of the market. I can't compete with the lowest cost producers that are maybe getting their, their energy for free because they're harnessing a, a waterfall or whatever the case might be. I drop out and so does everybody else. But then what happens is you get that difficulty adjustment that automatically allows this to become competitive in the marketplace. And then the price stabilizes it as it goes up there and tries to approach it. What I don't think people realize is that these early on, this price was heavily tied to the electrical costs. And as time marches on and you get more of these four-year cycles, I think... I believe that the price continues to be bound by that electrical price. But as you get more market participants and more and more people that pile onto it, the upside of that is not nearly as bound. And you can get in a point, a point where you, it's almost like an orbital with like a spacecraft going around an orbit 
if it just gets pushed a little bit outside that orbit, it can actually completely separate from the orbit and it goes off and then it becomes global money. I, I think that's exactly what we're seeing playing out. And I kind of believe that this next four year having cycle combined with all the things that we're seeing globally with these debt markets, um, just getting totally debased and totally manipulated might be that final push that kind of kicks it out of the orbit that it's going in. And so as we look at the May having that's coming up and you're seeing the stock to flow models showing that it should be around a hundred thousand, somewhere in that ballpark. Right. And it's not going to, it's not going to get there within the first, well, it'll probably get up to that level within a year. Um, this according to the model and maybe even go higher. But I think as it pushes higher and you get all this global adoption and then you have market caps that are in excess of trillions of dollars, I think you're going to have traditional financiers that are looking at this and saying, all right, clearly this is, this is something that is not going away. This, is, this thing has been pronounced dead 150 times at this point, and it's clearly not dead. And I'm seeing the debasement that's happening. And I think that as you as you push this thing up and past a trillion and you start getting this buy-in and you get all these various vehicles that are allowing people to capture the underlying price through financial derivatives or whatever. Um, and I, I don't know, necessarily know if I would call that, uh, what's it, GBTC, a financial derivative, but I would, um, vehicles like that are going to enable this thing to kind of bump out of that that stock to flow price that's being held in there by this two week difficulty adjustment combined with the four year having when you, when you put those two together, um, I'll, I'll use a military reference. So, and, and there's a great movie scene that, that exemplifies what I'm talking about. So if you ever watched the start of gladiator and you have the, uh, long bows, right? The, the archers, the longbows, they shoot their, their, their longbows. And then you have all the cavalry that's, that's flanking, going up the flank, around the backside. They don't see them because their heads are down and they're trying, the enemy is there trying to protect themselves from those longbow shots that are coming in. So they got their head down, they're hunkered down, they're trying to protect themselves. And as they're doing that, that cavalry of all the, the horsemen are going up around the side, around the flank where they can't see them. And then as soon as those uh, longbows stop firing, they come in there on a fast attack, fast assault, and they, and they go to battle and they catch them by surprise on, on their side. What I think you have there, your longbows, and I'm using this military reference, people might hate it, but I love it. Um, they're using the longbows, that's your four-year having cycle. That's the thing that comes at you when you just think it's so far out there that it's not correlated at all to a two-week difficulty adjustment. But then after the, that longbow has been fired with that four-year uh, having cycle, the two-week difficulty adjustment, or your, that's your cavalry that's coming in, and it's just annihilating the living heck out of the uh, speculators. And so those, those uh, miners that are going in there and that are mining this, that are ratcheting up, that are trying to capture that price premium that, that, is, that occurs immediately after that four-year having cycle, all those speculators come in, they bid the price astronomically high, way above the stock to flow. And then the two-week difficulty adjustment just keeps grinding it back down to where it needs to be. So why did, why did Satoshi do all, why did he design it this way? Okay. Because I'm describing something that's, that's saying that the price needs to be fixed at that level 
for a four-year period before you go into another price bump. And then it needs to be fixed at that intrinsic value for another four-year period. Why did he design it this way? My humble opinion of why he designed it this way is because he needed entrenchment. He needed people to not, he needed this thing to not take off in four years because he knows there would be too much drama around it and that you wouldn't have the entrenchment into the existing financial rails in order to stop it. But if you can push this thing out over a decade, well, then you can get, you can get tons of volatility. People are going to write it off as being nothing more than a speculator's tool, right? That's, that's what the crazy people go in and trade because the volatility is over 60% annually. So only, only idiots are doing that. And so you'd have governments, you'd have uh, very wealthy individuals that would just write it off as being nothing more than a speculator's game. But yet the thing keeps trucking along and it keeps bumping its price up purely for the reason to capture and, and work its way in as a Trojan horse into the existing financial rails. That's my theory. What would have to happen for you to think either one, the Bitcoin thesis is no longer valid or two, something in your theory is inaccurate? So I've been asked this before, and I think that the, the concern that I have is that early on, my concern was that it could be banned and that a government could step in and do something to it that could stop it. I don't necessarily have that concern anymore. I think that what we've seen globally, there are countries like Germany, there's other countries that are absolutely open, arms wide open to this thing. In fact, I would argue any country that's dealt with dollar dominance over the last 80 years, which is every country, um, has felt the pain of, of what that's like to not be a, a reserve currency. And they're looking at this as maybe being something, especially country, and I think this is why it's so popular in Germany, is because they remember, it's in, their, it's in their deep cultural roots, the 1920 hyperinflation event with the, with the mark, that they remember that culturally. They know how that played out and they don't ever want to see it again. So they look at fiscal spending a lot different than I think a lot of countries in the world. And so they're looking at this and saying, this makes a whole lot of sense. So as long as you have countries like that, it's never going to get shut down. And that's what a shutdown needs is for everybody to agree that it needs to be banned. And I don't see that happening. So that was my original concern. I would say now it, it could be you know, the price could go down. You could see a lot of psych psychology, maybe push it lower. If you had miners that, I, I think this would be a concern. If you had miners that started really pulling their rigs offline and they were not in the business of swapping fiat for payments in BTC to stuff into their treasury on their balance sheet, I think that would be a concern. And we have pretty much seen the exact opposite of that. Um, and I think you're always, I guess my personal opinion is you're always going to see the exact opposite, opposite of that for one reason. And it's the difficulty adjustment. Look at what we're going through right now. The price got hammered, right? And there are many miners that, that became unprofitable because of this derivative movement that we've just seen. But guess what? The incoming two-week difficulty adjustment that's due here in a couple of days, it's dropping 15% to make it more accommodative for them to come back online and boost that price right back up to the intrinsic value. 
It's all by design. I mean, this the game theory on this thing is nuts. And here I am trying to tell you how it could fail, and I'm still coming up with freaking reasons of why I don't think it's going to fail because I've tried my darndest to come up with all the reasons of why this thing won't work. And all I can arrive at based on the game theory is that it is going to work. Yeah. It, the only thing that uh, you didn't say that I answered the question with is uh, a self-induced bug. So from a developer standpoint, there's something that's introduced to the code base that could be like a self-inflicted wound. Uh, obviously, given the development process, I think that's highly unlikely. But I'm with you in that there's just not very much externally that I think is a threat at this point. Um, and so what you go to is kind of the self-inflicted stuff. Well, I, I love that point. I think that's a great risk to highlight. You know, and when we look back at the summer of 2017 with Jeff uh, Garzik, right? Remember Jeff did something really goofy there right at the last minute that could have really compromised a, a, a lot with just the trust and confidence in the, uh, in the protocol. Um, I think that could play out. I, I don't know if, if that plays out that the code can be adjusted. People can go back in there. They can, they can adjust the code, right? The protocol. And those transactions or the, the, the basically the stoppage that you would see throughout that period or are, are going back to a, make that adjustment, I think you'd lose a lot of trust for some uh, people that are coin holders in the protocol. Now, would that trust go somewhere else? I don't necessarily know that, that it would long-term. It might short-term, but I think as all systems come back online, I think that you would have not everybody come back in, but I think you'd have a lot that would show back up and they would, they would stabilize the market. Um, but I don't know, necessarily know if it would cause this, this loss and trust spiral that would take it down to zero. I don't think you're ever going to get that because this difficulty adjustment is in the four-year halving cycle is going to ensure that this eventually becomes global money. Yeah, your your, your concern there is that the trust. Your your concern there would be that the trust would go into some other digital currency. That would be the concern, but I I can't name another digital currency that's going to give you the speed of clearance like Bitcoin. And uh, Nick Carter wrote just an incredible article. Um, I think it's titled, um, it's the clearance of pay uh, payments, stupid or something like that. Maybe you can put a, a link to it in the show notes. I'm sure you know which, which article I'm talking about, but that's the challenge for any competitor that in the cryptocurrency space is that you have to overcome that variable because at the end of the day, this is going to be money that banks are using, especially central banks in order to uh, settle payments that are billion dollar transactions. And if you don't have a very uh, thick layer that this thing can go through as far as transaction size in order to get quick uh, payment clearance, statistical clearance of payments, it's, it's never going to win in the long game, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Look, I want to finish up talking about uh, volatility. Um, obviously, volatility works in both directions, both up and down. Um, Bitcoin, as you mentioned, has uh, incredible annual volatility. But um, I think you and I both believe that this is a feature, not a bug. Maybe explain a little bit about what that exactly means and, and why you personally believe that. 
So let's go to the idea, like, let's say we were designing Bitcoin from the beginning and we had this idea of combining a four-year halving cycle with a two-week difficulty adjustment in order to create these intrinsic values, these stock-to-flow valuations. And um, as we were doing it, we could do something that had this, this perfect linear intrinsic value growth over time into the model. And I think that I think you could achieve that by adjusting the four-year halving, maybe make it shorter. I don't, I don't necessarily know what the optimal solution would be, but I know that if I move the four-year halving uh, cycle and the two-week difficulty adjustment into certain positions, that I could probably remove a lot of the volatility around that intrinsic value price and that I could have this nice linear growth in the price. So you have to ask yourself, why didn't he design it that way? Or why didn't he or she or them or whoever design it that way? My opinion is that it was designed to have volatility on purpose in order to make it look very speculative and make it look like it was nothing other than what crazy people do or maybe crazy people trade. And so when I say it's a feature and not a bug, here's, here's, here's an interesting thing about game theory. When you're doing game design, designers of games, uh, and you can read about, I mean, there's books out there on, on some of this stuff, but game designers use volatility as a tool to, to bring uh, professionals and non-professionals together in a game. So let me give you an example. So like if we were playing the game of chess, Highly skilled game, right? Very highly skilled. If I've been playing my whole life and I've run those repetitions through my neural net millions of times, if you step in and you've played 10 games, I am going to just annihilate you because of all the conditioning that I've done on my neural net. So it is very hard and not fun for a new participant that's learning the game to play somebody who's highly skilled. That is not fun. It's a terrible experience. So if I was going to design a game that would make that more fun for you to play a grand master at chess, all I got to do is, is introduce volatility into the game. So now let's say that um, every time we, we play, I do my move in the game of chess, and let's say that I'm the amateur and I'm playing a grand master. Every time the grandmaster plays, before he plays his position, he has to roll a dice. And the dice is, uh, you know, six numbers. If he rolls an even number, he can, he can play normally. But if he, if he rolls an odd number, he has to skip his turn. And it becomes my turn again. Okay? When I introduce this new logic into the game of, of variance, the skilled player loses their edge. And the amateur gains a, a enormous edge. I kind of believe that when you apply that logic to the Bitcoin protocol and you look at how the two-week difficulty adjustment is so far away from the four-year having event and that you try to hold the price at this intrinsic value, that it was done by design in order to create volatility so that you could have unskilled players compete at the highest level with the most skilled players in the world. I mean, it would make sense right in, in terms of at least that's what we're seeing the um the final product um kind of uh you know present itself as and to me one of the things that uh i always go back to is like was it intentional or not 
right? And, and some people would argue, oh, there's no way that you could know uh, through game theory the volatility and and the leveling of the playing field between skill sets, you know, yada yada yada, whatever. Well, at the end of the day, you can say whether it was intentional or not, but that's where we are today because that's what it does do, right? And the volatility, that is what it does. And so you kind of walk through this stuff and it's not an argument ever on, is this true? Is this not true? It's always an argument. People will go back, especially detractors and argue on, was this the intention of the design? Which I think is frankly, you know, not really an argument worth having because it is what it is. And, and these are the facts that we have today and we can see how they're playing out, um, you know, in kind of practicality on a daily basis. You know, one of the things that I read, and, and this is going back to that book, the book of Satoshi, where it's all of his quotes, the kind of, uh, you know, encapsulated into a single book. Um, early on, there were people that were, uh, this is whenever uh, WikiLeaks was going, having issues with how they were going to receive payment. And so all these people started showing up on these Bitcoin forums and saying, hey, this is our big opportunity. Let's Let's have WikiLeaks run Bitcoin on the website. And you know what Satoshi's response was? He was adamantly opposed to this. Adamantly opposed to it. He says, no, we, we are not at the point where we need attention right now. And so th for me, that specifically, that specific engagement and that specific quote for, in the book was really powerful because... Um, he knew very well that he needed a lot of time and he needed a lot of entrenchment and he needed a lot of refinement to make this thing become a global currency. And it just further compounded my belief that, um, the, the Trojan horse analogy was a deep, very deep time fuse that, um, I think he was erring on the side of caution by pushing the four-year halving cycle out to, to the date that he ended up using because he really knew that this thing needed time to, to churn, to get that, that entrenchment into the existing financial rails. Do you think uh, Satoshi is somewhere still watching this and saying, wow, it's playing out how I designed? Hell Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I tend to agree with you. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy to see all this, uh, play out, um, again, just so quickly. What, uh, what's your favorite book that you've ever read? You're, you're a very well-read person. So what, uh, what's your favorite or most important you've ever read? Dude, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, well, the more you, you read, know, the harder I, it is. Yeah. I, it really depends on what the topic is that you're, that you're talking about. Um, I would, if I had to pick a, a book, I would say, um, it would really revolve around habits because, you know, early on, I just had no idea how profound that is to really kind of, um, master your habits. So the power of habit is a really, really good book by Charles Duhigg. And, uh, another one that I think is also really good is atomic habits. Um, both of those books are going to give you some insights into basically how you condition your mind. Um, you know, when I, when I look at how the brain works and you look at your neocortex, it's, it's there trying to solve like the problems at hand in the, 
the, the things that are right there in front of you right now. You can do all your hard math problems with that. But almost all your processing is actually in your sub in your uh, subconscious in the rest of your brain and and all these things are happening and they're and they're happening based off of habit loops that that you have established so you know you, you even have i mean this is the thing that i think a lot of people don't even understand is you have uh you know on your spinal cord going down you have you have gray matter clear down there in your in your spinal cord and so like you eat a strawberry it goes down into your stomach and all those neural nets are firing as to exactly how uh, your stomach needs to secrete certain acids and how all of that's taking place subconsciously and you don't even realize it. So think about, think about the things you do all day long and you think about your senses that are providing this cueing into your subconscious brain and the decision-making that is happening that you are not even aware of. And let me tell you, it is way more profound than people realize how many decisions you're making on a daily basis that have nothing to do with what's happening inside of your neocortex or your critical thinking uh, portion of your brain. So uh, those books for me are really powerful because when you think about what is it that I want to become, where am I going, um, how am I going to get there, you then have to break it down into what are the habits that are going to be need that uh, that I'm going to need in order to get there. And then you've got to just start conditioning them like it's a deep neural net uh, machine learning type algorithm in order to achieve that. So like if you're going to play, let's say you want to become great at chess, well, the only way you're going to get there is by doing it as often as you can uh, and probably doing it right before you sleep because then as you sleep, your, your brain is basically re-simulating all that stuff that you learn, especially at the end of the day. Um, all of that stuff to me is fascinating how the brain works. Uh, well, it's, I, I could give you a million book recommendations, but I tell people, focus on your habits, focus on what it is you're trying to achieve, uh, understand what that is. I like to use the analogy that you're on a boat and a lot of people are just out in the water and they're letting that boat blow them all over the place. And in order to achieve what it is that you want out of life, you have to say, first of all, what's the destination? Define the destination. Then as you're on that sailboat, you, you can control the sail and you can control the rudder. Those are your two things that you can control. You cannot control the wind. It might be blowing straight into your face. And when people see wind blowing into their face, they might say, well, that's impossible. I can't sail straight into the wind. But guess what? You can. You can tack into the wind. So you might not be able to control your environment, which would be the wind, but you can absolutely control some things in your life. And once you master what those are and you understand what, what those controls are, whether it's the sail or the or the rudder, once you control what those, once you understand how to control what those are, you can go anywhere you want. And I think one of the best ways to be able to control the rudder and the sail is to understand how to work your habits in your life. And so I would, I would recommend those two books. I love it. Thoughts on aliens before I let you go? Believer, non-believer? Oh, absolutely. That's, that one's easy. <laughs> Why? Oh, it's just the, the universe is so massive. Just, it's unbelievably massive. I mean, I would get into your, I guess the better way to answer your question is how do you define an alien? Um, I'm assuming you're describing it as some type of organism that assembles, you know, different chemicals into a certain order. But um, yeah, so if you're using that definition, absolutely. I think that there's, it's just way too big for, there not to be some type of life, even in the most elementary form, whether it's just like a microorganism or something. I love it. I love it. Um, you could ask me one question to finish up. What you got for me? Oh, I like this. 
All right. Uh, how? You're not going to like this question, but I'm going to ask it. Go ahead. <laughs> so you're on, you're on Squawk Box all the time. And I can honestly say I laugh my tail off when you're on that show because you are just this calm, consummate professional that is literally just laying down truth bombs on that show at all times. And you're doing it in such a manner that it seems like it seems like they're not truth bombs because you're just talking about it so casually and just so nonchalantly. But for anybody who understands what you're saying, it is comical to watch the expression, especially on, on Sorkin's, on Andrew Sorkin's face, right? He just, he is not there. He is not getting this whole Bitcoin thing at all. And I guess my question for you is what the hell are the conversations once they, they break to a lot of commercials. I've been on that set before they go to a lot of commercials and there's a lot of sidebar chats. What are the sidebar chats with you that we don't hear? So, uh, I'll give you three examples. Uh, the first is, um, there's a lot of non Bitcoin talk, right? So like, um, They'll explain, here's the types of assets that we do own. Uh, they actually don't own a lot of assets because they don't want to appear biased, et cetera. So there's a lot of kind of talk about that. Now it's just more of my, me driving that conversation of personal curiosity over time. Uh, two is uh, one thing I will say. Um, so for those who have never been to the set, basically, uh, you walk out there you know, a couple of minutes before you're going to uh, go on and do your segment. And now when uh, I've walked out there, uh, they just light up, right? And, and Joe, and they're all smiling. And, and it's just like, oh, it's time to talk about Bitcoin pumps here. And, and it's just kind of like, is this real or is this not in their opinion, right? And they're still trying to figure it out, like you said. And so to them, it's more of like, a, this is going to be fun, uh, which I think is a good thing, frankly, um, for, for me and then for, uh, for Bitcoin too. But, but that's always just kind of the reaction. And in the last couple of times um, that I've been on, there's been uh, other people with me. And, and the one uh, example that, uh, that just cracked me up was um, the last, the second time I was on with Kevin O'Leary, as I sat down, he just looked at me and he just had this smirk on his face. And he said, uh, you ready to do it again? Because the first time we had gotten into a whole thing. And, uh, and I said, yeah, of course. And uh, he goes, how much of your, uh, your net worth is in this nonsense? And I told him, and then sure enough, as soon as the camera turns on, he was just waiting. It was like a, a piece of bait. And he, he immediately asked me the question. And when we got done, he goes, I couldn't resist. <laughs> and so I think that what you end up finding is uh, they just want to have fun, right? And, and they're, they're doing a great job, I think, delivering the news and, and trying to uh, educate people and keep people informed. But at the same time, they want to have fun and, and, and be entertaining, et cetera. And so uh, the, the conversations are quite, uh, quite hilarious. Um, but the one thing I will say is, uh, Joe went from a complete non-believer to, uh, literally asking, you know, secretary Munchen, uh, what do you mean? There's no money laundering with the dollar. Right. And, and so anytime you can get a host that is ready to, to just serve up his own truth bombs, uh, I think we've, uh, we, we've kind of accomplished our mission there. I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I would have suspected that. Becky or uh, Andrew would have been the first adopters. And so when Joe came off, I mean, man, Joe is hardcore now. It's, it's kind of amazing to see him just be all in on it. So yeah, dude, you are doing such a service. I want to personally thank you on behalf of 
the people that are in my community. Um, I mean, it is such a pleasure and it is downright hilarious to watch some of the stuff that you say on that show, because I can just literally see it flying straight over people's heads. And, um, and you're just saying it in a way that is, is exactly how we want the community to, to say it on that show. So dude, you're crushing it. I absolutely love it. I appreciate it very much. Where can, uh, where can people find you online? Where, where, uh, where should they go learn more stuff? So I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can just find me at Preston. Last name is P Y S H Preston Pish. Um, I also have a podcast called We Study Billionaires. We pretty much just try to read whatever book we can find that a billionaire investor has recommended um, or read whatever articles we can. And then we try to talk about whatever moves they're making in, in the markets to try to understand what's going on. My show is much more focused on the economy in general, not just specifically Bitcoin. I'm obviously a huge hardcore Bitcoiner at heart. Uh, so it's really fun for me to talk about it. But my show is much more uh, wider in what we cover from us, from all the different types of securities. Um, but yeah, I appreciate the the opportunity to to provide that handoff. It's called We Study Billionaires on the Apple Store. Absolutely. Well, I, listen, I appreciate you coming on and uh, spending so much time to do this. And uh, you you uh, are dropping your own truth bombs on Twitter, so uh, we'll definitely have to keep doing this more often in the future. So thanks so much. Loved it. Thanks for the opportunity, Pomp. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.